Thank you, ladies, for that wonderful hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me Today. Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to stand up here and look out and see all your wonderful smiling faces. It's so encouraging. Well, as we come to the final chapters in our study in the book of Deuteronomy, we are also marking the end of the year-long study that we have had in the Pentateuch. Five books of the Old Testament. Five foundational books of God's truth that he has laid down for us and for all that follow after us. Well... I trust that this study has been as life-changing in your walk with the Lord as it has been in mine. So as we begin this morning, you want to open your Bibles. We're going to start with chapter 30. We'll spend just a few minutes there reviewing what Dr. Chow had taught us last week. So as Moses is about to leave his people, he teaches them the truths that that are dearest to his heart. At the heart of Moses' message and at the heart of Israel's law is one single commandment. We all know it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Everything in the law is about love for Yahweh. Every breath of life is about loving him. Dr. Chow reminded us last week that... um, The authority of God's word is continual in Israel's life, as it is in ours as well. And Israel was also accountable to all of the law, and they were accountable to live it. So authority and accountability never end. Obeying God requires that you love him from the heart. And, of course, that requires that you have the right heart, a circumcised heart. But God says to Israel, I haven't given you that heart, and yet I'm still going to hold you accountable for everything that is in this law. And we say, how can that be? That's not fair. That's not just. Deuteronomy 29, 29, we fall on it, deals with this very tension. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. These are the things that God has, given, has, has not given for us to understand. But we know that God is just and that his ways are perfect. If ever we find ourselves questioning the justice of God, all we have to do is step back a minute and ask ourselves, why me? Why did you choose me? This is not the end of the story. God has a plan, and God has a plan for Israel. Chapter 30 is God's loving voice of hope. Moses looks to a distant time when Israel will come to the end of themselves and turn to God with a repentant heart. Then God will do what Israel never could and what we never could. Moses says, here's the hope. God will circumcise your heart. This is the work that only God can do. He will cleanse your heart from sin. He will grant you a heart to love me and he will obey and to obey him wholeheartedly. The law was never intended to save because no one could keep the law perfectly until Christ came. Only he could do that. So the law is a tutor that shows us our sin and pushes us to that gospel. 
As someone said, it's the school bus that drives us to Christ. He was the only one that could keep the law. So by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, one receives a new heart, a circumcised heart, a transformed heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. As always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So many of you know what it's like to pack up a child going off to college, especially for the first time. Many hours are spent packing and preparing them for campus life. As the time draws near, there are always a few more essentials that need to be squeezed in and a few more reminders. Remember, don't forget, and always drive carefully. If you're like me, everything is worth repeating just in case they didn't hear it the first 10 times. And of course, they never acknowledge that they've heard it. In these last chapters, Moses is packing a few more essentials for Israel as they prepare to enter the Promised Land. And like us, we hear Moses reminding them, remember, don't forget, and we hear him repeating many of the same things he has told them before. So let's look at Moses' preparation that we find in chapter 31 and chapter 32. His death is imminent. We know that, don't we? It has cast a shadow over the entire book of Deuteronomy. But he knows there's still a work to be done. Two million people are camped on the cusp of the promised land near the Jordan River. And we can only imagine the excitement and fear that they must be feeling as they anticipate all that lies ahead. Once again, we are reminded of Moses being how old? 120 years old. I love D.L. Moody, who analyzes those 120 years this way. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. 40 years learning he was nobody. And 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. So the Lord has told him that he would not take the people across the Jordan, that he would not enter the land of promise because he broke faith with God and did not treat him as holy at the waters of Meribah. We know the story very well, don't we? Moses the man was a mortal man, a sinner just like you and me, and in a moment in time, he underestimated the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. And just as sin is always a choice, so is obedience. God's leaders never have the privilege of disobedience. In fact, they are held to a higher standard because of their influence and example to so many. Moses has felt the oft-repeated theme that runs throughout the Pentateuch. Obedience brings joy and blessing. Disobedience brings sorrow and cursing. Although Moses could never undo what he had done, by faith he moved forward, embracing the consequences. He faithfully fulfilled all that God had given him to do, even up until the last moment of his, of his breath. Certainly, this is not the way Moses or the people of Israel thought it would be. But we must remind ourselves the sin of man, a fall of a leader, does not thwart or derail the purposes of God. The purpose of God never change. God's people do. So we must keep our spiritual eyes on the sovereign purposes of God, the noble cause of the gospel, rather than on the frailties of human leaders. So how does this 120-year-old faithful leader prepare the people for the promised land? How does he encourage them to remain faithful to the one true God? By remembering. 
Moses encourages them to remain faithful. First of all, in verses three through eight, remembering God's presence. Don't forget he is with you. Moses knew that they would be facing a fierce enemy across the Jordan. Long, hard battles would need to be fought in order to conquer and possess the land that God had sworn to give to them. Moses says, before you ever face the enemy, while you're in the heat of the battle, remember, you are not alone. God is with you. In fact, verse 3 declares, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you, and Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you. God arms Israel not with chariots and giddy-ups, but with his presence that goes before them and with the boots-on-the-ground leadership of Joshua. Just as God had chosen and equipped Moses to be Israel's great leader, legislator, nation-builder, mediator, he did seem irreplaceable, didn't he? God has chosen and equipped Joshua for the next leg in his redemptive race. He will be the leader to take the people into the land that God had promised and for over 400 years before, all according to plan, all on time. For 40 years, Joshua has walked in the shadow of Moses. He was an ordinary man who feared the Lord, and he was fat, faithful, available, teachable. I have never loved anybody asking me, how fat are you? But I'm asking today, how fat are we? Does the Lord find us faithful and available and teachable? As women and moms, where do we begin? Well, we can start with the words found in Luke 16.10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Pastor John Uh, Green gives the wise counsel to a young Christian asking how he could begin to prepare for a life in Christian ministry. Pastor says, start here. Make your bed each day and speak lovingly and respectfully to your parents. There's no need to talk about greater public things if you neglect the seemingly lesser private things. Those 40 years of faithfulness in the lesser things under the mentoring and training of Moses have prepared Joshua for the privilege and responsibility of leading the nation of Israel. He's a man with a shepherd's heart and a military mind. He's a man well-suited for the grueling physical and spiritual battles that lie ahead. By the laying on of of Moses' hands, as we see in chapter 34, Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom and endowed by God to do all that God had purposed him to do. And without missing a step, the baton of leadership is passed from Moses to Joshua. He is publicly commissioned before all the people, and then we see later in the chapter that he is commissioned by God himself at the tent of meeting. A principle that has changed my life and a principle for us to remember, when things don't go according to my plan, and my plans change, it's always good for me to remember that plan B is always God's plan A. Joshua was always God's plan A. God knows, however, there is a tug of fear in the human heart. There's nothing that so tries our faith faith as the unknown or what seems as the impossible. So Moses, in verses 6 and 7, exhorts the people and then repeats the same encouraging exhortation specifically to Joshua Israel's new leader. And we know it so well 
be strong and courageous. Do not fear, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. How often we counsel our own hearts with those same assurances. The principle of faith and confidence will be repeated four more times to Joshua in his career as leader. And it's found numerous times throughout the scripture. This is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of courage. It does not come from confidence in your own abilities, but confidence in God and in his strength and his abilities and counting on his presence to be with us. This is a courage that is defined as steadfast, enduring, resolute, expecting victory, anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise. Carl uh, Baker wrote, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Pastor John follows with courage born of confident faith in God compels us to a maximum effort in the struggle. Courage is the opposite of fear and dismay. And just as fear is contagious, even more are strength and courage. Do we live our lives with courageous confidence and faith in the Lord? As we get up every day, walk out the door, get on that freeway, we can have great peace knowing that the Lord has gone before us. All the events of the day have been ordained by him. And when we find ourselves with a flat tire, and I have a lot of flat tire stories, or a distressing phone call, or a life-changing diagnosis, we can know that God has already gone before us. He has already been there. And when we arrive, we can know he has already made provisions for everything that we need in that moment. Of course, the command to be strong and courageous does not imply kick back and let God. We are given responsibilities. We are accountable to God for our actions. Israel had to put on the armor and by faith in, and put, on, and put their faith into action and fight in the battle. They had to do the hard work of conquering and dispossessing the nations. The walk of faith is not always a walk in the park. It's a walk of obedience, which requires diligence and strength and courage and endurance and perseverance, all those words that we send to not want to listen to, which comes as we put our confidence in God, knowing that he is always with us. So remain faithful to God by confidently remembering God's presence with you. Well, secondly, Moses calls them to remain faithful by remembering God's provision. Don't forget your love for the Lord. His provision was the book of the law. Israel was to be a holy and distinct nation, different from all the other nations. They were God's chosen people. The covenant marked Israel as the people belonging to God. Right behavior would not only bring blessing for Israel, but also means it would also be the means by which they would witness to other nations. Unlike the pagan nations that bowed down to man-made idols with no voice or words to speak, Israel was a people with the living words of a living God. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Doesn't get any more intimate and personal than that. The words that Yahweh spoke to Moses were obviously very precious to Moses. They meant everything to him. 
Throughout his ministry, Moses kept a record of the events of history and of the words that God spoke and the things that God revealed to him. And he wrote them down so that his people would know their God and so that we would know our God. These ancient words have long been preserved for our walk in this world, and they forever resound with God's own heart. They have been handed down from generation to generation. The unshakable, unchanging word of God stands forever. How precious is God's word to us? How precious is the time that we spend every day in intimate fellowship with him, face to face in his word? Verse 9, it tells us that Moses entrusted that written book of the law to the joint care of the Levitical priests and the elders. They shared in the responsibility of teaching the people and ensuring that those under their care uh, lived in accord with the stipulations of the covenant. They were the caretakers and the guardians of the truth, the written word of God. The tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed were kept within inside the Ark of the Covenant, And this book of the law, written law, was placed alongside the ark, and both were kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That's how precious these words were. These documents attested to the Lord's relationship to his people throughout the years. And Moses includes, as you saw in your lesson, specific instructions. The priests and the elders were to ensure that God's law was read in the hearing of all of Israel, Young, old, men, women, children, aliens, everyone heard the written, heard this word spoken. So Israel had to mark their calendars because this was to take place at seven-year intervals in the sabbatical year at the Feast of the Booths in the place God chooses. Very specific. It would be a time of celebration of the covenant and a renewed dedication to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. It would be a time for the younger generation to learn the full meaning of the covenant, even though they would have known about it beforehand from the teaching and instruction of their parents within the home. We saw that in Deuteronomy 6. We see a whole book of Proverbs that speaks about the teaching of the mother and the father in the home. But they would come to understand it greater significance of the covenant as they gathered together in the presence of the larger family of God's people. Is not that the same example that we should follow today? God preserves his word through the unbroken chain of faithful men and women guarding the truth, passing it on to the next generation. We assemble each week in church to hear God's word faithfully taught and passed on to us. And then, as moms and grandmas and Sunday school teachers, we pass on the truth to the next generation, don't we? Just as Timothy learned sincere faith from his grandma Lois and his mom, Mama Eunice, our children also learn by what they hear and by what they see in our homes. But they grasp a fuller understanding of the importance of God's word within the community of the church. It's important that we bring our children to church because it's here that they learn from the testimonies of families They see other families just like them, loving God and loving the word. And here's where they learn about loving and serving others. God's provision for Israel to remain faithful to the Lord was remembering the book of the law. God's provision for Joshua's successful mission was the book of the law. 
Joshua 1.8. It's not to depart from his mouth. He was to meditate on it day and night, and he was to be careful to obey it. God's word was to be the priority of his entire life. It was to influence his speech, saturate his teaching, inform his thinking, and determine his careful obedience. God's provision for us is his word, the living word of God. Does it hold the same priority in our speaking, in our teaching, in our thinking, in our walk with him, and in our choices in life? Israel's strength and courage, and ours as well, would not be found by trusting in the weapons of the world, but found by trusting in the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God just as they were to remain faithful by remembering and trusting in God's presence and his provision, so should we. Well, thirdly, Moses calls Israel to remain faithful by remembering God's poetic song. Don't forget God's love for you, and don't forget your obedience to him. What was it that prompted and inspired Moses to write that song? which some have called the National Anthem of Israel. Well, the answer comes as we listen in at the Tent of Meeting in verses 14 through 22 of chapter 31. God instructed Moses and Joshua to present themselves at the Tent of Meeting so that he could officially commission Joshua. But as we might expect, that was not the first order of business on God's agenda. Instead, Moses and Joshua receive rather disheartening news, didn't they? After Moses dies, the Lord predicts that Israel will turn their backs on the true and living God and follow other gods. Despite his many blessings to them, they will not follow his commandments and walk in his ways. Forsaken by Israel, God would forsake them. He would hide his face from them and chasten them. They would experience and know the curses the covenant warned about. Well, even though this didn't come as any great surprise to either one of Joshua or Moses, it is not what you would want to hear the last day or the first day on the job. After the Lord commissioned Joshua as Israel's leader, he instructed Moses to write the song and to teach it to the people. When disasters and calamities come on Israel, this song will testify against them. It will serve as a constant reminder for generations to come of the goodness and faithfulness of God and the predicted consequences of Israel's apostasy. Who can measure the power of a hymn or a song? Throughout Scripture, we have seen how powerful a song can be. God has reserved for his people 150 songs in the book of Psalms. And wouldn't we have loved to hear Paul and Silas singing hymns chained together in the Philippian jail. And who can measure the power of a hymn? There's nothing. See, it still moves me. Nothing so powerful and moving than listening to three to 4,000 men at our shepherds' conference, standing, lifting their voices together and singing the great truths of the faith worshiping and praising our God for his greatness and for his wonderful deeds. Who can measure the power of this song to Israel? The song tells the story of Israel's history, focusing 
on the unrivaled character and nature of God in relationship to his people. The words of the song concentrate heavily on Israel's unfaithfulness and God's curses. It ends, however, with hope, anticipating a time when God will redeem his people and give them a heart to love him. It sings of God's greatness, his goodness, his faithfulness in chastening his people, and his grace in redeeming them. The song opens with a universal call for the heavens and the earth to hear the message to Israel. If these teachings were received and the warnings heeded when the words would come down into their hearts and minds like the gentle rains in the morning do, they would be beneficial for a fruitful and blessed life in their new land. Oh, that the soil of our hearts would be so ready to receive God's word and that they would be beneficial for us for a fruitful and blessed life. Well, how else could this powerful song begin but by Moses proclaiming the name of Yahweh and ascribing greatness to our God? Yahweh, I am, is God's covenant name revealed to Israel, and the greatness of God's omnipotence is unparalleled. All authority, all sovereignty resides in him and him alone. There is no rival. There is no competition. He is Lord. He is the most high God. His name and greatness are not only seen in his actions and compassion for his people, but they are also seen in his actions throughout the earth as he defends the honor of his name and fulfills the promises of his covenants and acts against the nations in judgment. Israel's God is our God. How great is our God? He's the rock. Didn't we love that image? Throughout the, it's a key image throughout that runs throughout this song. It speaks of God's stability and permanence and dependability. He's our rock, unchanging, dependable. He's faithful and he's righteous. His works are perfect and his ways are just. Well, it doesn't take long. Verses 5 to 6, that sharp contrast of God's faithfulness to Israel. We are jolted by Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh, their God. God says, They are a perverse and crooked generation. I don't know about you, but I love this question. Is this how you repay the Lord? We say that sometimes. Is this how you repay me for all that I've done for you in your life, to our children? Um, He's our father. Is he not your father who has bought you out of Egypt and made you into a nation and established you, matured you, and sustained you? Is he not everything to you? And then on the heels of Israel's unfaithfulness, the song turns again to the goodness of God shown to his people. As descendants of Abraham, Israel was always God's people, and he was always their God. He sovereignly chose them to be his people, and he even marked out sovereignly the land that he would give them as an inheritance. You see, God owns all the lands. And he marked out that land in which his people would dwell. Yahweh's love and grace for Israel were manifested in the way he brought them from bondage in Egypt to worship him. Remember this in Exodus? To worship him at Mount Sinai. He tells them, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How could Israel ever forsake a God that loved them so much? How could we ever doubt God's faithfulness and love for us. 
We too are chosen and protected in Christ. One of my favorite hymns is, All the way my Savior leads me. And one line asks, Can I doubt his faithful mercies, who through life has been my guide? Well, sadly, Israel could and did forget God's goodness and mercy. And in verses 15 through 38, the song becomes prophetic as it looks to Israel's future. Oh, sorry. Future ingratitude of God's abundant blessings. Israel would not be faithful to Yahweh. Instead, they forsake him, their rock, in exchange for the little pebbles of idolatry and apostasy. Even though Israel was unfaithful, Yahweh remains faithful. His providential grace is unaffected, and his discipline falls upon his people as a discipline of his faithfulness. This section of the song highlights God's faithfulness to chasten his people. Wow, that's not how I look at faithfulness of God. But it is because the blessings and the cursing in the Mosaic Covenant was evidence of Yahweh's faithfulness to do exactly what he said he would do and exactly as they agreed for him to do. God said he would hide his face from them. He would bring calamities, disasters. He would scatter them among the nations if they turned away from him and followed other gods. Their idolatry moved God to jealousy. He will tolerate no rivals. He will tolerate no rebels in love. God's jealousy is a love for Israel. It's It is that of a loving husband whose wife has betrayed him. So God moves Israel to jealousy and humility by using other nations to chasten them and by bringing salvation to the Gentiles. We're thankful for that. God's goal in punishing Israel was not to destroy the nation. It was to bring her to repentance, to bring her to the point where she understood there was no God beside the true and living God of Israel. He's the only one that can help. He is the only one that can protect them. He is the only one that can save them. God will reveal himself to the world through Israel, either through their faithful reflection of him or through his discipline of Israel's unfaithfulness. Well, the final verses shine with hope of God's grace and the redemption of Israel in verses 39 through 43. The Lord will execute his vengeance on behalf of his helpless people, bringing judgment on all of Israel's enemies and on his. He will vindicate his name. Against the dark background of God's judgment and wrath shines the hope and assurance of his grace. Even though God will punish the unrighteous in Israel, he will have compassion on his servants. He will show mercy to those who have been remained faithful in their love and obedience to him. His grace is on full display in 43, as the song points to the future, when all the nations will rejoice with Israel and praise God for his provision of redemption for Israel in Christ. And for this provision of a new beginning for Israel in the land that he promised. He will bring them back to the land. 
Do we not look forward to that day when the entire universe will be transformed into a symphony of praise to God? Well, after reciting the song, Moses reiterates that these are not idle or frivolous words. They are key to living long in the land. Listen up, obey, follow God. Moses prepared his people to remain faithful to the Lord by calling them to remember God's presence with them, remember God's provision of his word to guide them, and to remember the song of Moses to warn them. Well, that brings us to the second part of our outline, parting words of blessing in, verses, in chapters 33 through 34. So we'll first look at the blessings of Moses, and I knew, know that you looked at this in your lesson and how exciting it is to see all the blessings that, that were poured out on Israel. Final words. Have you ever thought about your final words? What will you want your last words to be? A few years ago, I heard the story of a young pastor. While driving home with his small son, they were hit by another vehicle that ran a red light. After the crash, the father realized there was no hope for his survival. He turned to his son, his young son, and said, Go with the fireman. He will take good care of you. I can't come with you. It's time for me to go see Jesus. Final words. Words that spoke volumes to his son and to me. Words of his faith and his courage and his assurance of salvation. Words that flowed from a life that rested in the sovereignty of God. What, can, what an incredible legacy he left for his son with those final words. In the, ancient world, in the ancient world, it was customary for the father to impart a final word of blessing just before his death. We saw that with Jacob as he blessed his 12 sons. And now Moses, as a father in the covenant family, gives a personal blessing to each of the 12 tribes of Israel, descendants from Jacob's 12 sons. Isn't God good? If you're counting, you probably notice that the tribe of Simeon is omitted, and I think you see that in your lesson, because they will be absorbed into the tribe of Judah and be blessed through there. But we can't help but notice that Moses' words, unlike the song, are blessings of encouragement and an anticipation of victory in the near future. Blessings that are in the form of a prayer and will require and depend upon God's fulfillment. Once again, we can hear God's promise echoing through these blessings. You will be my people, I will be your God, and I will dwell in the land with you. I don't know about you, but as I was reading and studying through the blessings of each tribe, I found myself thinking, hmm, I wonder which tribe I would like to live in. <laughs> location, 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 I say. Well, there were a lot of choice locations, and there were a lot of choice lands to live in. But after careful search, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, that's where I landed. I love that by God's grace, they were set apart as a tribe of priests. Their swords that were once implements of violence became instruments of God's judgment at the incident, of, remember, of the golden calf. They weren't given an inheritance in the land. God was their inheritance. 
It's such a precious reminder to those who are believers in Christ that our inheritance is not in this world. We have been given an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and yes, it's reserved in heaven for you. That's where I want to be. Well, what greater blessing could one ask for? And Moses prays that the tribe of Levi will faithfully fulfill their task and that the Lord would protect them. And that ought to be our prayer for the Lord's church as well. These blessings given to Israel certainly bring to our minds the countless unreserved, undeserved blessings that God showers on us every moment of our lives. As we take time to count our many blessings and we name them, by, name them one by one, you know what? I think we'll be pretty surprised to see all that God has done for us. Moses concludes his blessings with a blessing to all of Israel with praise to the God of Israel. Did you love that poetic imagery found in 26 through 29? It's just breathtaking, isn't it? These ancient words have brought comfort and strength to many believers along the way. Just listen as I read. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heaven to your aid and the skies in his majesty. A dwelling place is the eternal God, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Even though the path ahead for Israel was filled with danger and war, Yet it was within this path of danger that Israel would find safety and eventual victory. It was in this path that they would find the presence and the help of the eternal God. It was in this path that they would understand they were being upheld by his everlasting arms. And hasn't that been true for us as well? The path of danger, the path of suffering, suffering, the path of of um, unexpected surprises. That's where God meets us in ways that we have never seen him before and where we discover that God has always been there with his everlasting arms underneath us. Well, Moses cheers them on with a final benediction of encouragement. How blessed you are, Israel. Who is like you? A victorious army in the Lord. So that brings us to the final chapter. Chapter 34, Moses has put down his pen. In these final verses, the narrator gives us a glimpse of the gracious blessings of God at the end of Moses' life. The time has come. Moses has completed his work on this earth, and God has called him to the top of Mount Nebo. And aren't we always amazed? Here comes that year, 120 years of age. His eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. I was just thankful to get three steps <laughs> with glasses. <laughs> and um, even though there were consequences to Moses' sin, God extends grace to him. The prohibition against entering the land had not separated him from God's presence or God's grace. God blesses Moses by giving him a panoramic view of the land of the long-awaited promise that God had made to those patriarchs. Not only was he afforded a view, but he was also given personal assurance from God himself that he would, faithful, would be faithful to fulfill his covenant promise to Israel. 
What a joy that must have been for Moses to hear and to see. God's grace extends to Moses centuries later. If you were feeling sorry for Moses not going into the land, Moses would step foot into the promised land. He and Elijah would appear and interact with Christ, the greater servant, in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, after viewing the land, Moses dies in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. God determined in his perfect will the time and the place of Moses' death. And in an act of love, the text indicates that the Lord secretly buried Moses in a place not known to man. And yet we try to scramble around figuring out where he was buried. God said, not known to man. In biblical times, when a man was buried, he was buried by his family. How appropriate that the one who knew Moses face to face is the one who buried him. It's comforting for me to know, and I'm sure you as well, that the death of God's saints is precious to him. We can rest in knowing that death is not by accident, but by his sovereign appointment. It's according to the word of the Lord. Well, we have considered what our final words might be as we near death, but have we considered the words that we long to hear God say to us? Aren't we all longing to hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come in, enter in to the joy of your master. Moses was called the servant of God, but his significance as a servant rested in the fact that the one whom he served was significant. He was faithful, humble, obedient to the one true God, and he willingly followed God wherever God led him. How do you, how do I, how does God sum up our life? Can it be said of us that we are humble, faithful servants of the Lord? Are we willing to follow God wherever he leads us? Are we willing to do whatever he asks us to do? I'm standing here today because of that. Servants are faithful in the spiritual battles of the daily grind, as well as in the spiritual battles found only in the crucible of difficulties and suffering. We're servants wherever, whenever, whatever calls us to, whatever God calls us to do. Moses' epitaph in the last verses of 10 and 12 does not stress what Moses knew about God, but rather what God knew about Moses. It says there, There was no prophet in the Old Testament like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Well, this does anticipate a time when God will raise up a prophet like Moses, a prophet whom Moses himself wrote about. Remember earlier in Deuteronomy? A prophet that would be greater than Moses, the one who would bring the new covenant and make hearts new. Hearts that then could love God wholeheartedly. You see, Deuteronomy all along has moved the Abrahamic promise forward. And what is that? Land, seed, blessing. We have seen it. Hebrews 3, 5 makes this comparison. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. God 
uniquely used Moses as his instrument to accomplish his mighty deeds in the sight of all Israel. I don't know about you, but it gives me great confidence that as long as we seek and serve the Lord with a whole heart, our flaws and our weaknesses will not prevent the Lord from using us and accomplishing his mighty work through us. God uses at the top of your lesson, you saw that, God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. What a privilege to be used of the Lord. What a privilege to be an instrument. I just pray that we would all be found faithful. Well, we've come to the end of the Pentateuch, the end of, the Deuteron- of Deuteronomy, the end of the wilderness journey, the end of Moses' life, and the end of an era. But it's not the end of the story. All we have to do is turn the page in our Bible and we see what God will do next in the book of Joshua. So that's just to whet your appetite, to go forward and to see what lies ahead. Well, I am so thankful for this study. Let us just close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we ascribe greatness to you and to your name. We are so thankful for your loving kindness that stamped across all of the pages of Scripture. And your your faithfulness extends from eternity to eternity. And that by your grace, you have called us and brought us into that line of redemption. How thankful we are, Lord, for that. Thank you for doing what we could never do, for giving us a new heart to love you by faith in Christ Jesus. So teach us, as Moses says, to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, that we may be found faithful to do all that you ask for us to do, and in your strength, and in your, for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness to us. May we never turn away from that goodness in your greatness. May we not be like Israel that forsakes you and forsakes your word. Keep us faithful, Lord. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, our precious Savior. Amen.